Welcome to the Theology for the People podcast. This is Pastor Nick Cady, and I'm joined again today by Pastor Michael Payne. Hey, Mike. Hey, great to be with you again. Well, today I wanted to talk about a subject that is really close to my heart. I studied it for my master's. This is actually my master's, a Master of Arts in Integrated Theology, which basically means I study this thing called theological method. So, Mike, maybe you could just ask questions about what that is, and, and I'll do my best to answer them. All right, well... I- Obviously, the first question that comes to mind is, what is theological method? Yes, the theological method um, is is a really important thing. In fact, I think that more people need to spend more time talking about theological method because, let's put it this way, you've got different kinds and different ways of doing theology, right? So there is a theology of many things, right? There's a theology of work, a theology of um, romance, there's a theology of just about anything you can think of theology of evangelism, for example. But a theological method is examining the methods by which people do theology, right? So you can also have methods of doing theology, meaning like you can have biblical theology, canonical theology. Those two are almost the same thing, but basically they look at the Bible as a whole. What does the whole Bible say about this thing? Then you have something called systematic theology. Systematic theology means that you are looking at what does the Bible say on this particular topic, and you're pulling all the verses that are relevant to that topic and then trying to systematize them. Theological method rather um, goes outside of that or zooms out, if you will, and would say, um, how do you reach the conclusions that you reach? And what systematic or sorry, what theological method what theological method does is it takes the five recognized sources of theology and says, how do you use those sources in relation to each other? And meaning also in, if you will, like prioritizing them against each other in order to do theology. And um, I'll explain what those five sources are here in just a second, but let me just put it this way. A lot of times when we do theology, you might come to the point where you say, well, you know, this group of people says this, right? Let's say like Baptists say this about this topic and this other group over here, Presbyterians, they say this, Catholics say this, and they've all got their reasons and their reasons seem pretty good. And so um, do, we, do we just have to agree to disagree? Like, is that where we just stuck? Is this loggerheads, right? We're just, uh, it's a traffic jam. You believe your thing. I believe my thing. I have my reasons. You have your reasons. And these guys have their reasons. And that's just the end of the discussion. And we just have to accept that we all believe different things. Well, theological method allows us to actually go beneath the beliefs themselves and examine how you got to believe those things. And then we can actually determine whether or not those beliefs are valid based on what underlies those beliefs and how you got to them. That also matters very much, right? So like, for example, you could say uh, something that, um, you know, maybe can't be disproven uh, in a way because there's some things to back it up. So you say, I believe this. And then, but I can actually say, let's say I could look at a a theological method and say, well, how did you reach that conclusion? Was that a good method or a bad method? Was it a flawed method? Was it different than the method you used to, to come to other conclusions? And if so, perhaps we need to reconsider that. 
And so the five sources of theology that are generally recognized are scripture, tradition, and reason, experience, and community. So I'm going to stick with those first three because they're super important. Scripture, tradition, reason. Now, these were always recognized, um, you know, during the uh, patristic period, meaning the church fathers, even in the Middle Ages, and even into the Reformation. And a lot of the Reformers talked a lot about these three, scripture, tradition, reason. But then John Wesley came along and he said, you know what, there's one more. We should have it be a quadrilateral, not a triad. And the quadrilateral should include experience, because experience really matters. And so at first, you know, uh, Wesley was kind of like shot down by a lot of people. He was considered a little radical for saying that we should consider experience as a source of doing theology. And he said, look, whether we should do it or shouldn't do it, it is something that people factor in when they are doing theology. And I can, I can explain more if you'd like about what that means. But then in more recent times, let's say in the last I don't know, century max, um, people have said, well, you know, community is a part of experience and it can also be related to tradition, but it does seem like it's its own separate thing, right? The people around you, if you're part of a, whether it's a believing community, whether it's uh, the fact that you're a citizen of a certain country, you live in the West as opposed to the global East or the global North as opposed to the global South, that affects the way that you think we call that epistemology, and it affects the way that you do theology. So those are the five. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience, and community. And the way that you use those and prioritize those in relation to each other is your theological method. Yeah, now, question comes to mind, like, most people would think, well, theology, you only have one source. That's the Bible. How do... How come now I have five sources, and what order do I put them in? And those kind of isn't that kind of that seems, you know, surprising to me that if I'm going to study God, that isn't my only source going to be the Bible? Yeah, and that that's a really common response. Um, in fact, there's even a, a name for that. Um, it's kind of like common sense uh, theology, so to say. And um, there's. A lot of people who have said that over the years is really popular in North America, by the way, to say, I just read the Bible, I understand it, and I just do what it says. The fact is that if you get a little bit underneath it, um, it's not quite that simple. And we, we should be honest enough to recognize the fact that it's not that simple. And here's why. Um, let's say you just read the Bible. Okay, cool. You're just reading the Bible. But do you realize that the Bible itself is a form of tradition? Like it says in 2 Thessalonians, right? Paul says to the Thessalonians, uh, hold fast to the traditions, whether, whether in writing or in, in word. He's referring to oral tradition and written tradition, right? And so the Bible is the result of oral and written tradition. Uh, the New Testament, for example, the stories we had about Jesus, they weren't written down as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Originally, they were oral traditions, and then they were written down. And so, um, the Bible itself is a result of a tradition. It came through the church. God gave it to us through the church. So, um, that matters. So, there you have a community, believing community, right, that shapes the way that you read the Bible. So, let's say there's somebody out there who has a faith commitment. Let's say their faith commitment is that they are an atheist. That's a faith commitment. So they would read the Bible differently and they would come to different conclusions than a person 
who has a faith commitment. So there you go. There's your community. And also there's an aspect of reason. Anybody who reads the Bible is using reason. Now there's different forms of reason that come into play when we read the Bible. There's something we call theological reasoning. There's something we call canonical reasoning, which says, I read this verse in light of what the other verses in the Bible say. Now you might just say, well, aren't we just reading the Bible? Yes, but you're utilizing reason, right? You're not just taking each verse on its own. You're taking it in light of other ones that takes reason. But also, we, we do reason with um, with how what we already know about God. That's that's a that's called theological reasoning. We also do it with what we know about the natural world, right? You say, okay, does this line up with the natural world? And um, and so, for example, we read about a miracle. Now we might say, well, the laws of science would say that that's not possible, but what we know about God means that it is possible, right? So we're utilizing reason in one form or another when we're doing that. So, so, so that would, so we go back to this person who says, well, I just read the Bible, and you know that's a very common response nowadays. You know, I don't go to church; I just read the Bible. So basically, you're saying that. They just say they read the Bible, but they too bring a form of theological method, or they they have a theological method into which they read Scripture, right? Yes, and that's the thing I would want everybody to know. Every single person out there does theology. Number one, theology is the study of God. Even if you uh, don't believe in God, even if you are an agnostic who says, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, I can't know or I don't care— that is, uh, that is doing theology, right? And then, of course, there's people who do theology intentionally, and they, no matter who you are, you have a theological method. The question is, do you have a good theological method? Well, how can I know then? How can I know what my, my theological method is? Yeah, well, I think that there's a way to break it down, right? Basically, you take the things that you know, and I think that, I think a good way to start is by saying, what is it that I think in theory ought to be my theological method, right? Like if I look at these five things, what do I believe ought to be the order of priority that are given to these things? So scripture, reason, tradition, experience, community. Most Protestants, uh, well, I would say all Protestants generally would say, in theory, Scripture ought to have priority of place. It ought to be the, the first thing that we go to. And we might bring those other things into the equation when we're doing theology and determining, you know, what does this verse mean? How should it be applied, etc. But we're going to stick with Scripture as our main source of theology. Now, you have other traditions that don't, don't think that way. For example, you have uh, the Roman Catholic and Orthodox traditions, Orthodox tradition primarily in this case, which would say Scripture shouldn't receive priority of place because Scripture is a form of tradition. Therefore, tradition should tell us how we ought to read and understand Scripture. So they're going to start with tradition, then go to Scripture, and they're going to put reason meaning like even rational thought, right? The reason how we know that the world works, they're going to put that way down on the list, right? So if you say, if the Bible says that the sky is green, they're going to go to the church fathers. Did the church fathers say that the church, the sky is green? And if so, then we'll read the Bible that way. And who cares what reason says, right? Now that is itself a community. They're also going to be 
deprioritizing things like personal experience. Um, so, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So, are there some theological methods that are better than others? I think that, of course, I certainly would say that there are. Uh, and I think that everybody would probably argue that there are some that are better than others. But certainly, if you look at all the different viewpoints that people land on, they are a result of theological method and how it's applied by different people in different ways. Now, now I remember your question earlier. It was, how can you know what yours is? I think you start with saying what you ought to believe. Then you examine if you're being consistent. Now, let me give you an example of this that I got from uh, doing a, a study on John MacArthur. So John MacArthur, on the one hand, he, he calls himself a, he would say that he is reformed in his soteriology, which means that he believes that God chooses people and God saves people. Um, you don't choose God, God chooses you, that kind of thing, right? So that, you know, reformed soteriology very much prioritizes scripture. And then it, it, it would go next and say, after that, they prioritize reason, then tradition, and, and maybe community is really important because there are other people in that community, but they definitely deprioritize experience. And here's why. Because when you focus a lot on the sovereignty of God and you deprioritize or you, you say, we don't really believe in the free will of man, what you're saying is that you're, you're agreeing with people who have throughout history um, said, like Martin Luther, for example, he, he wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And he's saying that you're, when you think that you have free will, free will is an illusion, right? You think that you're choosing to do the things that you do. In reality, um, God has preordained many of the things that you do, and you're just kind of living them out. But uh, it was God who caused them and God who did them. Therefore, your experience should be not really that credible for theology, for doing theology. Really what matters is um, what the Bible says. Okay, so there's the theological method that puts scripture at the top, then theological reasoning, and way down at the bottom is experience. Now, what's interesting about John MacArthur is then he is not always consistent. And here's, here's one, one example. He's not only a Calvinist, but he's also a cessationist. And a cessationist is somebody who doesn't believe that the uh, sign gifts, meaning uh, like the miracle working gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, mentioned in the in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, are relevant for today. Now, I do give uh, John MacArthur a little bit of credit because he doesn't uh, agree with one of the Bible verses that's sometimes used to prove that point by people who hold it. Um, he says that Bible verse is not talking about what people say it is. And I think he's right, but here's what he says. He says, therefore... Um, since there is no scriptural basis for believing in cessationism, that these particular gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. Therefore, um, the only reason he believes in cessationism is because he has never seen those things personally take place. Now, what is that? He's doing theology, and his primary source of theology to make that point is not scripture. It is experience. And he himself admits that. So you see, that's a very different theological method. He's saying, I start with my experience, and then in light of that experience, then I look at the scripture and say, how then should I interpret the Bible, since the Bible doesn't line up with my experience? 
And then he'll, he'll also uh, deprioritize tradition because tradition has not held this position. That is not a traditionally held position. It's only found uh, starting in Scotland and some of the, the Protestant movements that came about uh, in the 1700s, maybe late 1600s. So there's not much tradition, uh, meaning church tradition and interpretive tradition, backing that up. And so that has to go down on the list too. So he's starting with experience, then reason, saying it just doesn't seem reasonable to him. And then he's putting those other things later on down the, down the line. Uh, I think in that case, that's one of those cases where you would say, in examining my theological positions and how I reach them, am I being consistent with what I myself believe is a good and proper and appropriate theological method based on what I already believe about God and the Bible, the inspiration of Scripture, and the importance of tradition. Yeah, so if, um, you know, we've kind of determined that, that we all have a theological method, whether we know it or not, we all are reading Scripture, you know, and p- with priority or putting in our own order so these five things that we talked about. But so but what, what if I, okay, I want to try and find out where, where I kind of land or what, what kinds of theological methods are out there that maybe I can try and find my place in. Yeah, so um, a big part of the Reformation was an issue of theological method, but I think a lot of people misunderstand the Reformation in this sense. They think that it was um, a rejection of tradition in in, and instead, they were saying, we choose to believe the Bible, not tradition. Well, I would say the Reformation wasn't primarily a rejection of tradition. If you look back, Martin Luther wasn't trying to say, let's cast off all of the beliefs of the church prior to today and start over on a blank slate. Now, some people did do that, and people even today do that. What Martin Luther was doing was, was really more about authority But still, what he ended up with, and what Protestants uh, definitely espouse, is one that says, Scripture first. So, sometimes when we say, sola scriptura, as a Reformation principle, the Scriptures alone, it would actually be more... um, more accurate for us to say like uh, the primacy of scripture as opposed to scripture alone. And that's actually what a lot of Anglicans have said. They've said, well, it isn't only scripture if we're really honest. So let's be honest and just say it's the primacy of scripture. So that that's one of them. Uh, here are a few others that I could give you. Um, let's start with mainline Protestant theology which, you know, interestingly started out as Protestant, but has changed the theological method in large part. So we're talking about the Episcopalian church, some Methodist denominations, uh, the more what we call like theologically liberal branches of uh, Presbyterianism, etc. They tend to start with a a theological method that really prioritizes um, the community Aspect. So when we say that community was added, here's a really good example of how community affects theology. So we live in a society in the West that that says you know certain certain things um, 
that are in contradiction to traditionally held Christian beliefs. For example, uh, when it comes to homosexuality or when it comes to uh, redefining marriage, when it comes to um, several other things. So how do you do that when 2,000 years of Christian history has said Christians have traditionally read these verses about sexuality and interpreted them in one way, and now you're doing it differently? Well, what you can see in their theological method is that they are starting with the community around them is really, there's this pressure culturally to do certain things and believe certain things. So they're changing their beliefs or maybe starting with the cultural assumptions and then reading the Bible differently in light of those things. So there's an example of people who are prioritizing community and what maybe we would say culture, society, etc., over tradition, and reason, or maybe they, maybe they're prioritizing reason, but they're doing it over Christian tradition, and that becomes the lens through which they are interpreting the Bible. Another one, another interesting theological method would be charismatic theological method, which in many cases is saying it, it could be called like a pragmatic theology in the sense of saying like if something works, then it it's often seen as true, or if something. Um, you know, they, they would sometimes really emphasize experience. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we talk about Wesley adding experience to the equation of theological method, and rightly so, but a lot of people, um, you know, Wesleyism did give birth to the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements. And so uh, you see that they definitely emphasize experience in their theological method. It's very important that they not just know these things and and they, they would probably push reason down way low on the list. In fact, they even have some mantras in some uh, charismatic circles that say that God will offend the mind to reveal the heart and things like that. So you can see that's a pushing down of reason in that order. Um, definitely reformed theology and the, the, ref the theology of the Protestant reformers elevated reason really high in the, in the equation of how they did theological method. So um, I would say those are some r important ones to keep in mind um, when we're talking about it. You know, so you've got your Catholic and Orthodox definitely prioritizing tradition. Um, you've got your liberal mainline Protestants in the West who are emphasizing community. You've got charismatics emphasizing experience. And of course, Protestants emphasizing scripture. So then, I mean, I guess it kind of all boils down to I'm done listening to this podcast and I open up my Bible. Um, you know, how do I now go about reading my Bible? Do I need commentaries? Do I need to download John MacArthur? Do I need to? What I, What do I do? What? How does this kind of affect how I go about just reading the Word of God? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the answer to that is this: that we we want to read the Bible, but we don't want to read the Bible in isolation, because we need other people to. We need that community, and we want to make sure though that we're in the right community. We're being affected by the right community. Um, and we have those influences, right? Like we do want to look at not just what do I think this means and how it's applied, but how have Christians traditionally uh, throughout the last 2000 years, doesn't mean they're always right, 
but I should at least consider what they had to say um, to see if I'm if I'm coming up with something new and totally totally off base, or am I in the flow of what God has been revealing to His people through the Scriptures by the Holy Spirit for two thousand years? Now there are some minor debates, but in general, you know, is this idea I'm having how does it fit within the flow of what God's been doing amongst the people? So, so that would be a really big part of this is to say. Doing theology should not be a solitary endeavor. It needs to be done in community with the people of God. This is something we talked about this past Sunday. We studied 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and, and Paul says, I am called to be an apostle. And then he says, I'm writing to you who have been called by God to himself and who have been called by God to be saints, to be holy, and you have been called by God together with all those who call upon the name of Jesus. And the point there is that these are all the ways that what it means to be a Christian. We're called to God. We're called uh, to be sanctified, but we're also called to the body of Christ. And so I would say, read the Bible on your own, um, but don't just read the Bible on your own. It needs to be done in community. It needs to be done in the right community. And I would say, try to examine as you're coming to conclusions you know, what are the prior influences that have caused me to come to those conclusions? Um, am I being influenced by the things that I think I ought to be being influenced by? You know, is this just my own idea that I'm coming up with? Uh, is it based on what's my popular culture around me is saying that I ought to believe about whatever the topic is, you know? Um, or am I in the stream of what God has been doing and is doing in the community of those who believe and follow Jesus? Yeah, you know, I, I guess an example of that would be, you know, the whole homosexual question. So I'm reading my Bible and I come across all those passages about homosexuality in Scripture. Um, how do I now, you know, now the society we live in and many, you know, as you said, mainline churches would say that uh, those are antiquated or that wasn't written, you know, it's 2,000 years ago. It's not for today. There were no such things as, you know, the, the homosexuals they're talking about, is, it's different than today. Or, you know, so there's that pressure, as you said, from society. There's the idea of experience, maybe. Well, these people are just, you know, they're just super cool people. You know, why would God not love them? Uh, or even the idea of reason, like any reasonable person would accept these kind of things. So how, how now do I kind of apply my theological method to reading some of those scriptures and and how would you put that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'll tell you my own theological method, at least what I, what I think is a good one. And then I will, will tell you how some of the debates about this have gone. Uh, first of all, so I would say that I think a, a good evangelical, meaning somebody who's a gospel-believing, Bible-believing Christian, it, it should generally be in terms of scripture, reason, tradition, experience, and community in that order. And um, then the next thing I'll tell you is this, that there, I think the most convincing argument um, from a biblical perspective for changing views or changing the way that we view. Or um, affirming. 
affirming. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, changing mean changing the traditional view of mm-hmm. Christian Christians about this it comes from Acts chapter 10. This is a argument that I don't hear made very, very often, but it's a really compelling one. And basically it says this, that Peter, you know, in there he's praying and then he sees in this vision, this blanket coming down with all kinds of what would be unkosher foods on them. And God tells him to stand up and eat. And Peter says, no, 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 wait, why would I do that? That's, that's against the rules. And God says, don't call it against the rules if I've made it uh, okay. And so the question is, well, is God there, there in that case, changing something that has been traditionally held, a, a form of tradition, and changing it? And now it's okay. And they said, well, couldn't God, in theory, do the same with homosexuality, where we have the Bible and all these verses, which clearly say that homosexual behavior and activity is out of bounds, that it's sin, couldn't then God in our own day and age be saying, oh, I've changed the rules on that. And the proof of that is that, you know, look at these people over here, like you said, uh, like experience, look at them, they're super cool and there's nothing wrong and it's all good now. Why wouldn't that be acceptable? And I think that is the case when we go back to theological method and we say, wait a second, what is it that we believe about the nature of Scripture, right? Is it truly inspired by God? Is it sufficient? That's a really important question in this case. Is it sufficient? Second Timothy 3, yeah. 16. And, and if it is sufficient, then, then why would God change his mind, right? Is it unchanging? Is God immutable in these things? How should we understand the, the kosher uh, dietary change that took place amongst the early Christians. And and we could get into that in a whole different episode. Uh, there's a good explanation of that. But what we're doing is we're saying, okay, what do we believe about scripture? It's sufficiency, it's nature. And then what do we believe about tradition? You know, does God just change things over time? Or is the tradition that's been handed down this 2000 years of people reading the scriptures and coming to the same conclusion as they have the Holy Spirit within them? Is that is that um, something we need to consider? And and then we go into the other debates as well. But I think that in that case, that's why it's really important that as Protestants, sometimes tradition can be seen as a bad word. Tradition can be seen as you know something that we should cast off, right? Because traditions are from men and not from God. And um, I would say that that's not the heart of the reformers, and it shouldn't be our heart either. We believe that God has been working in the community of Christians. Um, Now, it doesn't mean that everything every Christian has ever done or thought is right. It doesn't mean that even the majority of Christians have always thought or done the right thing, but it means that we should consider that when we're trying to figure out how to uh, do theology faithfully uh, as people living today with complex and difficult topics, especially where, you know, the culture is saying one thing, the Bible is saying another thing, and we have to figure out where that puts us. Well, yeah, no, definitely theological method is something to, to think about. And, and, you know, as we go to our scripture, knowing very well that we're not going there with, I, I don't want to use the word pure motive, but, uh, uh, you know, kind of an unadulterated motive or, you know, we were going, we're bringing our baggage to it, and we're reading it in that we, and we need to check ourselves. We need to keep coming back to what does it say, and you know, and how how does that affect me based on, you know, my societary backgrounds or things like that. So, 
Well, cool. Hey, thank you for tuning in today to the Theology for the People podcast. We post new episodes pretty often, so make sure if you haven't subscribed yet to do so. Uh, you can also check out the text version of this website, the Theology for the People blog, and that is at nickkady.org. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. And if you haven't done so yet, I'd love it if you give us a rating or review on the Apple podcast app. That definitely helps boost us in the algorithm and recommend our episodes to people who are listening to or looking for content uh, that talks about the Bible and theology and God. And so uh, thanks for tuning in. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.